Hi, everyone, and welcome to the News Agent Podcast. I'm Susie Lysett, Senior Content Executive at Goodlord, and this episode is a recording of our Newsflash webinar on the topic of the Renters Reform Bill and the proposals that were outlined in the Fairer Private Rented Sector White Paper. Sean Hooker, Head of Redress at the Property Redress Scheme and Goodlord's Ollie Sherlock, joined the session only a few days after the proposals were announced to answer questions from the attendees and share their expertise on the changes. Now, we're aware there's a little bit of an issue with the sound for some of the recordings just a bit of a crackle so please forgive us for that but we hope you find it a useful conversation regardless. Uh, This is a pretty in-depth episode so without any further ado let's get into it. Morning everyone, happy Monday morning and welcome to this instalment of the Good Lord webinar series. Um, Today is a newsflash webinar as you're probably all aware we had uh, the Renters Reform Bill dropped last week um, and Sean and I want to jump on um, and share our insights and thoughts to the 82-page paper. Uh, we're going to be talking all things Renters Reform Bill today um, and I'm joined by Sean uh, who will be joining us um, shortly. Uh, but Sean and I have gone through the, the 82 pages to try and understand and cut through um, some of the detail and understand where the detail is and where the detail isn't uh, and trying to understand what the, the good, the bad and the ugly uh, of this bill um, looks like moving forwards. For those joining today um, who don't know, I'm Ollie Sherlock, Director of Insurance at Goodlord, um, and Goodlord is a tenancy progression platform that makes your letting agency more efficient and allows you to focus on the things that generate uh, you more income, win more landlords, and deliver the best possible customer service. Uh, that ranges from landlords' terms of business to rent collection, lettings accounts, to insurance, to payments, e-signing, all under one roof, branded uh, under your agency branding. If you want to understand more about Goodlord, um, then you can reach out to us via our website at goodlord.co. Um, that is, I promise uh, today, the one and only Goodlord pitch uh, that you'll get. Uh, today is not about us whatsoever. Um, it is very much focusing on the renters reform bill. And for that, I'm joined by the fantastic Sean Hooker. Good morning, Sean. Good morning, Ollie. How are you? I'm very good. We're in for a busy one today, my friend, I think. Uh, We have um, hundreds and hundreds of agents already joining us, um, and it's adding by the minute. Um, Clearly a hot topic. Um, I I, I fail to recognise that people don't know who Sean Hooker is, but I'm going to I'm going to suggest that maybe one or two don't. So, Sean, could you could you just let the guys know who you are and what you do? Yes. Hello, everybody. Uh, Sean Hooker. I'm head of redress at the Property Redress Scheme, which is one of the two uh, government approved uh, redress schemes for letting agents, property managers and estate agents. One of the one of the two. And, and there could be changes afoot there. Right, Sean, we're going to come on to it. We're going to come on to it. Come on to some of the detail. But um, uh, you are very well placed, I recognise, to talk us through um, the um, the raft of uh, potential changes that are being suggested in the white paper that was released on, what was it, Thursday now, I think it was. Last week seems a bit of a blur. It wasn't Friday at 5pm, which is... It wasn't, but it was. Like It was before the end of spring, which uh, officially ends tomorrow. I know we've had some really hot weather and... and uh, uh over the uh, you know over the last few days but summer doesn't actually start until uh wednesday i think so they said it would deliver in spring and they they did it so for once the government has delivered what they said they were going to do it, it, indeed and you actually i think on, on a webinar only a few weeks ago um uh suggested this would be the case so gold star goes to sean hooker uh for, for, for pinning the pinning the tail of the donkey as it were for want of a better phrase, um, in terms of uh, of pinning this down, um, let's look at what we're going to go through today. So, um, Sarah, we've got Sarah 
joining us and good luck to go through the slides. Um, we're going to go through the key proposals and um, we've outlined, you know, sort of the, the top points that we think are, are, are of interest and, and of importance. Um, and as I suggested, the, the Q&A is on. We've already got a couple of questions um, in already um, prior to even going through the details. So clearly, um, uh, letting agents um, alike have been going through the paper um, and, and trying to understand some of the detail. And again, today is try about trying to help you um, through some of that detail. Um, and where there isn't detail, try and give a bit of perspective and a few thoughts on what we think is coming down the tracks. Um, it's worth noting that the white paper doesn't actually deliver the you know the legisl legislative points maybe that some are expecting. It gives us a, a relatively high level view actually of what they're looking at and how where they're focusing their attentions. But there is going to be detail, and indeed, as always, the devil is in the detail. So things like um, the proposed um, uh, scrapping of Section 21, which of course is, is more than proposed arguably now, um, and the, um, uh, the, the changes to um, repeat uh, arrears, for example, you can see that there's a few lines around that, but actually the mechanisms in which that's going to work, clearly this, this is a white paper that is going to do that. Um, and actually it's fair to point out at this, at this injuncture that actually the government has said that now is the time to go away and once this is released, work again with the industry. And we do expect that work to continue, don't we, Sean? Uh, yeah, in round tables and a lot to, to work through the detail. I, I don't, what I wanted to say, you know, this is the beginning of the process. And of course, you know, when the government uh, announces anything like this, it's done with a big hullabaloo. The media, uh, you know, go um, uh, enthusiastically into speculation about everything. Uh, but the reality is that this is not uh, um, an oven ready. Uh, proposal at the moment it gives a bit more detail it gives the direction of travel but it's they've also pledged to uh to engage and discuss on individual points uh and, and issues where there might be unforeseen consequences so mm -hmm. please do not panic please do not panic it is, uh, uh, and and don't believe all the scaremongering that you're going to hear out there i mean bless we uh, you know within within hours of uh, of the white paper coming out uh, um hf assist which is our agent helpline was inundated with people asking questions and i know already we're, we're going to have a lot of questions today we won't be able to provide all the answers but what we can do is maybe uh, 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 get a, an approach that we could go back to the government and feed back to the government where on the ground, this may or may not be uh, what is needed. So, mm. you know, we're not going to change the fundamentals, but what we can do is we can, we can guide the, uh, uh, the direction of travel. In, indeed. And clearly the direction of travel has been guided um, given some of the points in that, in that paper already, whether you agree with them or not, you can see that actually they have taken influence um, from third parties, as they should, to understand, you know, where to land this. Um, and some of those points, you know, will be contentious. Um, I actually think that, you know, the majority of this is pretty bland. Um, I don't think there's huge amounts of, of, of change that we should be extremely fearful of. Um, there is a few head scratches in there going, well, actually, what, what does this do? And why does it do that? Like, you know, all this feels strange. Um, and there's some of the points that make perfect sense, frankly. Um, so let's get through the detail. Let's go through some of the points that we've um, we've sort of proposed here. Um, it, it's worth noting, um, whilst timelines are not on this slide, we are going to discuss timelines. We've got a bit of an insight into that. And with, I'm, I'm, I'm taking that insight from the Tenant Fee Act in uh, June 2019 to look at when that got rule of sense and, 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 and when that essentially got passed, etc. So we'll cover timelines uh, and we'll also cover deposits as well, which, which aren't no done here. Um, 
there were a few surprises in in in, in the white paper, Sean. Um, yeah. One of them for me was this first point: the, the single system of periodic tendencies. And you know, I think there's two parts to this. And actually, one of the first questions we've had um, from from Jonathan. Good morning, Jonathan. Is um, what's the what, what is the impact of the the periodic tendency piece? Uh, since I can't get my head around what they're trying to achieve or what the impact on tenants and landlords will be. Um, we'll come back to that in a minute, Jonathan. But for me, the the interesting part of this is that they're saying any once this is is enshrined, any new tenancies are going to we're going to have to be on periodic basis. But also retrospectively, I think I think it was a twelve month gap. But retrospectively, tenancies are going to be on a periodic basis. Talk us through what they're proposing here, Sean. Uh, again, I think where the, this idea has come from is uh, Scotland and Wales, to be fair. But uh, <laughs> um, so yes, uh, we didn't necessarily see this uh, that a new tenancy would be uh, type of tenancy would be introduced. But given the fact that the other uh, the other administrations in the United Kingdom have gone down that route, I'm not entirely surprised that they have taken this view. And basically, what they're looking to do is uh, uh, basically it's a effectively scrap the AST and the assured tenancy and merge them into a, um, a rolling uh, periodic tenancy with no end date, which can be ended at uh, 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 two months notice by both parties, uh, but with the landlord having to provide a reason for the ending of the tenancy where, where a tenancy, a tenant will just be able to give the two months notice. Now, if you note that that is a quite a fundamental change from the tenant's point of view, and you can say it's actually um, um, a benefit for landlords. Is the uh, old section twenty one only required one month notice from a tenant? It now requires two months, and uh, the government have said that that is to allow uh, a, a more smoother transition and the management of voids on the behalf of a landlord. So there's a small kind of nod towards the landlord in giving uh, uh, equalising the notice periods. So it's not now just a month. It will, will not now be a month. It will be two months if the, if this all comes through. So that's where uh, they're, they're trying to kind of um, even up the playing field. Um, now, what, now, what sort of tenancies will all be included in that is, is a little bit amb- ambiguous as well, uh, because they have they are talking about renters including lodgers and licensees for some some of this legislation but i don't think that they are going to go quite down the line of uh, uh of of bringing in a, a single tenancy as the welsh have done for every type of ten uh, uh tenure so we'll have to see how that actually develops as well so in terms of the the process here the suggestion is that from a set date all tenancies will be a periodic new tenancies moving forwards yeah there's notes in the paper that um within uh, I think is it, is it a minimum or sorry, minimum of twelve months later, they will look to then retrospectively take that action on existing tenancies. Have I got that the right way around? Uh, uh, yeah, I think I think so. so what what they what they're basically saying is, uh, and, and and again, I think this is another nod to uh, uh, to the uh, devolved nations because you've got a situation in uh, in Wales now where uh, when they introduce their uh, single tenancies uh, if you time it right you could get two years under the old system before uh, uh, having to uh, uh, introduce the new tenancy what i think they're saying is there that yes you can uh, uh, you know you can issue right up to date the last date uh, uh, an ast um, or in a short tenancy um, uh, and for six months that would be uh, 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 the contract that would be in place then thereafter 
it would then revert to uh, to the to the new tenancy conditions. So whatever you've got in that AST or a short tenancy, it will be overwritten. And that's my reading of it, but I'm sure that lawyers will actually have a field day uh, looking at the uh, at this. And uh, so, really, we just need to get that clarified from them because it does mm. look like. And and it, if you look at it politically, uh, Ollie, I think that makes sense because I think they're going to prioritise Section Twenty One, regardless of whether that is the priority. Uh, I will talk about that a bit later uh, because that's the political hot potato. And if they don't get that delivered. Uh, 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 before the next general election, they will be battered by the other parties who, who have uh, uh, also committed to getting rid of Section 21. So that's why I think that this is in there. Now, legally, whether you can override and uh, assign them binding contract is another matter. Yeah, I mean, my my thought on that is that that, that proves problematic if, if there isn't an agreement or an addend- at least an addendum in place. So um, I... I I would be surprised that you can essentially say outside a signed and binding contract retrospect, we don't worry what you've agreed to and then not form any wording in place whatsoever and just say, well, just so you know, this has kind of changed. Um, uh, but, you know, that, that's just my guess. And, you know, the, the, the people far more efficient in this area than me. Um, but I suppose it's worth noting that, you know, it, there may be a situation where you have to take retrospective action to send out an addendum to all parties um, God forbid you have to send out a new contract signing to both parties. That's going to feel extremely heavy. Um, but this is an area that letting agents should be tuned into and, and, and really watching with a close eye, isn't it? Because administratively, there, there could be a, a lot of process here. Now, of course, um, there, there, there's different solutions out there that can help with that. I promise no good Lord pitches. I nearly slipped into one then. Um, but the point, the point being is that actually, you know, ultimately understanding what the agent's role in this is going to be vitally important. And of course, that agreement forms the basis of how you operate your business, but it also forms the basis of accountability for both sides. So I think the new piece moving forward is pretty simple. It's it's clearly going to be a change in wording to the contract you're using, and off you go. The retrospective piece, though, a little harder to envisage how that's going to play, and indeed something we need to watch a lot more closely as time goes on. Well, again, you know, that that's exactly uh, what they're going through at the moment in Wales because they've got the uh, uh, they've got the default uh, tenancy agreement now. Uh, and, and that looks like uh, that, you know, that will be the, the contract. I mean, you've got to remember in England, we, there's no mandatory uh, um, uh, requirement to uh, have a written tenancy agreement in place at all, really. So mm-hmm. uh, this could be a way of, uh, uh, you know, uh, government saying they're going to have the model tenancy out there. And that could be the default that comes in, in place and uh, overrides and supersedes any uh, other agreement. So and- it's going to be very interesting how that how that pans out. And on that note, we've got some questions in from Dirk, uh, Richard, um, Courtney, uh, Georgina. Um, I think there may be another one in here. Uh, yes, Tom. Uh, good morning, all of you. Um, all asking a similar question here uh, in the sense of, so actually, does this now put to bed the six, a minimum six-month or 12-month fixed-term contract? The understanding from the reform bill is that they do go and you, you won't be able to enforce a fixed-term contract at all. I suppose... Adversely, do you think, Sean, a tenant can ask for a fixed-term contract? Because there will be some that want security, for example, as, as per the questions submitted. I, I think, uh, yeah, well, that's, 
that's a good point. Uh, these are rolling tenancies, uh, and and with with notice periods being provided um, provided in the um, in in the uh, in the legislation, proposed legislation. So the reality is that yes, what do you you know? Are you are you fixing uh, the system for? what people want or just making a system that's going to just be a blanket system over the whole thing there. And people have to find mechanisms to get, uh, uh, to accommodate what they need. So that's one of the other feedbacks there. So I, I suspect that there will be few exceptions to this. Mm. And one of the things that was the big clue that was in the uh, white paper and it's been picked up uh, by those people specialising in the student market. And that is that uh, generally the student market in the private rented sector is not exempt from this. You are going to literally have to be purpose built and registered uh, to the government uh, 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 to and, and prove that you have accommodation that is only suitable for the student market to actually get any uh, exemptions for overriding this uh, tenancy agreement. The government's argument for that is that basically, oh, well, yeah, although most students do want to leave after the, uh, their academic year has finished or, uh, um, uh, or they've finished their degree, some do want to stay on, maybe get jobs locally, go for uh, you know postgraduate studies, and therefore, why should there be an exception for the student market? So, I think that's going to cause quite a lot of um, um, discussion with the government over that particular reason why they have not got specific student provisions within the uh, mm. their proposals. Uh, I'll be very interested that answers, yeah. um, Sorry, sorry. I hope that answers Debbie. Uh, Debbie's question there. Good, good morning, Debbie. Uh, I, I hope you're well. And um, we've got a couple of questions in to uh, again a similar effect uh, from Christian. Good morning, Christian. Um, uh, and and a couple of others around um, the fact that you know will there be a minimum period? Um, reading through the paper. Let me give you my take, Sean. You can tell me exactly where I'm wrong because I fear that I may I might I might be. It's a periodic tenancy from day one. You can't serve notice. The landlord cannot serve notice on the tenant to, uh, for the first six months. The tenant can serve notice at any time, providing they give two months' worth of notice. Yep. Have, have I got that right? Uh, yes, I, I think that's the interpretation of it. Yeah. It, it, um, the, they was talk about there being a, 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 you know, fixed-term tenancies with break clauses at specific mm. times. But... I couldn't quite see that that was in the, the detail in, in the white paper. So we've right. both read it. We couldn't see that. So whether, but whether that's the intention, um, because they, you know, they do have these model three year tenancies out there that uh, nobody actually uses, um, or well, I've not met anybody who uses it, but not yet. Anyway, yeah. Not yet. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so it's going to be interesting whether, you know, that's completely rewritten or they say, well, actually, basically that's, that's how it will work. Uh, um, uh, because you know, I, landlords are not going to go out there and just say, basically, well, basically, I want um, somebody to be in my property for a longer term. If they're only going to turn up and then leave two months later, then uh, um, you know, it's not going to work for me, is it? But that is the inference of the paper, and I think yeah, no, 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 well, absolutely. To, to Charlotte's point, um, good morning, Charlotte. Um, hi, I'm confused. Does that mean the tenants have the ability to potentially give notice? Uh, to leave um, after two months of a tenancy. Well, if they would serve notice when they moved in, on the basis of what that paper says, 
then that's my inference because the ten, you know, what this paper is trying to do, I think it's important to summarise the, the higher level here. Uh, it, it seemed to me anyway, to give tenants more flexibility and the ability to get out of a property. One, if it's in a bad state of repair uh, or causing uh, potential harmful health issues. But two, to give them the flexibility that they can be transient in a, in a time of financial stress, that they're not held down to something they can't adhere to. And you then read the detail around the change periodic, the notice periods um, in force, and, and they note in there the, uh, the continuation of the minimum six-month period in which the landlord can't serve notice. And they also note that a tenant can leave the property by giving two months with the notice. The appearance, Charlotte, I've taken from this is that, yes, indeed, the, the tenant does have every right to exit the property under the new periodic terms, um, as and when they see fit. Um, on the basis, they give two months notice. And indeed, during those two months notice, they would be liable uh, uh, you know, for all the terms of the tenancy agreement, as, as stated previously. Um, but that seems, that, that again, Sean, that it feels like we're aligned on this. And we, I, would, I would add, guys, we would normally have quite a lengthy ses session, Sean and I, discussing this back and forth. But of course, this was only announced on Thursday, and Friday was the day to read it through. So I'm asking you, Sean, firsthand, it, that feels like where we're at but we probably need to see more detail, maybe. I, th I think that will be, will be, the devil will be in the detail. And of course, uh, there will be far uh, superior legal brains than mine kind of working on this as, as we speak, as, as more and more detail comes out. So, uh, but, but yeah, I think, I think, the reality will be, uh, and again, I'm, I'm going to try to be positive as well as uh, critical in this session, uh, that the majority of tenancies will will continue on uh, as private agreements between a landlord and a tenant without needing to be a uh, court being interfered. So people will discuss, they will say, well, actually, they I only want to be here for a year or whatever. And then there will be mutual uh, ag um, agreements of as and when the, the tenancies uh, end, as, as they always have been. You know, mm. it's the technical notice periods that uh, in case it actually goes to court, you, you, you have to be mindful of. But most of, the, of it will be, you, you will know if you're communicating with your with your tenants, you will know that they're not going to be there for two minutes and just disappear off. So, uh, you know, I think it's getting that alignment for a landlord providing accommodation that the tenant needs and, and the tenant being the tenant that the landlord needs. And mm. you guys, the agents, are going to be key to that. Uh, and, and, and if this helps in terms of giving a flexibility to allow you to to make sure you put the right people in the right property, then I think this is going to be positive. But if it's going to stop or be abused by by bad tenants and and bad landlords, then we need to actually make sure that we we understand this. Yeah, and and Victor asked a good question here. And Victor, I'm gonna I'm gonna change question slightly, and we'll, we'll, then we'll answer your question if that's okay. Because Victor asked, in your professional opinion, what are the three most significant advantages of this new renters reform bill to landlords? Um, I think that's a really good closing closing question. So I'm going to park that one. But I think I'm going to change landlords to letting agents. And I think one of the biggest advantages here for letting agents is indeed the change itself. Now, we may agree, disagree, feel indifferent about many of the points that we're going to discuss. But this change rep represents exactly that. And, you know, as an agent, you are front and centre um, of being able to manage and educate on this change. Um, and this is going to be a vital piece in, in my mind. Because, you know, landlords only know what they know. Um, so, you know, you, you, you're going to have the ability, I think, here to 
be able to maintain and improve um, business relationships um, and partnerships with landlords through the education piece and guiding them through these changes in legislation. It uh, doesn't necessarily mean we agree with them or you like them, um, but I do think it represents an opportunity to, to really take a role, um, as I'm sure you do already, to lead the way when it comes to landlord ed education. So one advantage there from a letting agency perspective. Um, flipping that round, there's clearly work to do here um, and there's clearly going to be an administrative uh, administrative um, um, uh, burden from some of phrase on agents with some of these changes. They're going to have to change their clauses in their agreements, going to have to change their terms with landlords potentially. Um, but one of the, the, the biggest talking points um, around the key proposals here and, and has been voiced extremely loudly, as you've said, Sean, from all parties, frankly, is the scrapping of Section 21, um, which now in the media is known as the no-fault uh, eviction. I mean, I do understand why it's called that, but I really, I really begrudge that phrase because I'm a big believer that very, very, very few landlords have utilised Section 21 just because they woke up that morning and decided they wanted to. Um, it, it has normally been the mechanism to deliver the property back because of other reasons, I think it's fair to say, in the majority of the time. But before we get into the, the, the how and when, talk us through what they're proposing here from a, a Section 21 perspective. Well, uh, effectively, uh, for any notice, period, notice you give, there has to be a, a reason, a ground for uh, for getting possession of that property back. Now, that's always uh, always been the system with uh, Section 8, uh, where you have uh, grounds uh, that you give to get possession, but Section 21, you never needed that. So ongoing, you will need to find uh, a reason for that eviction. Now, in the past, they were the punitive reasons, okay, for the Section 8, but now there will be uh, non-punitive reasons, uh, that you'll be able to serve as well. So uh, we've, we've discussed the student ones there. It looks like there won't be a provision there for uh, a student tenancy, uh, which is going to be interesting, as we said. Uh, but, uh, you know, getting the property back because the owner wants to move back into it, getting the property back because the uh, owner wishes to sell the property, getting the property back because a member of, the fa of their family or extended family want to move into it are three of the areas that have actually been mooted as being additional mm. uh reasons to uh to, to take back possession of course that is stimulated a, a huge debate about how do you improve that what happens if uh, you know you say that you're going to sell the property and six months later you haven't what happens if you you you, you know you say you're going to move back in and the next thing uh, you know you find that you've moved uh, uh tenants in uh so, so there are concerns about that, but effectively they are talking about having a reason uh, for, uh, uh, you know, that you have to provide that reason. Now, again, it comes back to that most tenancies will end as they normally do naturally because both parties have agreed a notice to quit and, and they move out. It's only going to be when it, when it actually lands on the, on the, uh, uh, on the doorstep of a court or, or there's a dispute on it, which again, we'll come back to when we have a look at dispute, uh, uh, the courts and dispute resolution. So, I think for most most of it, there will be it will be fairly standard because you are basically looking at the form. I have to give you this notice. Okay, you want to move out? Here we go. I'll tick that box, and and, and you can go. And and this is linked, isn't it? To I mean, for, for anybody that joined joined our webinar and joined our series of webinars, one of the things the consistent points I've made when we've talked about the rents reform bill is that 
they they pledge to give landlords more powers in the event of a breach. Um, and indeed, they highlight this for, I think, anti-social and criminal behavior activity in the Rent Reform Bill to say that they're going to continue to provide powers and, and improve powers, I think, around those areas. Um, I've got to say, though, the idea that the, the, the repetitive arrears line, including the bill, which we'll run through in a minute, is that white knight saviour that I had thought maybe they, the government would, would really protect landlords with seems to be a little bit of a false front. But the the Section 21 change ultimately shouldn't change too much, we don't think, in terms of the ability to get your property back where you have a reason. Um, how are they going to cut through the, the noise there? Because if one thing's saying, you know, you've got to do it when you, you, know, you can only do it when you want to sell your property. Like you rightly say, the question's being asked there, well, how do you prove that? Um, you can only do it when you're moving your brother in, your sister, your cousin. I mean, how, how far does that go? What mechanism do you possibly think they could have to to legitimise this 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 piece of legislation? Because it feels like one of those things that on the headline sounds good from a you know what they're trying to achieve point of view, but actually in practice, it's not really a substantial change because the question you're asking just changes to get the same answer that you got before. Well, that well, well that well, that's you know that's the, the, the you know the, the situation. I mean, it's it's I'm assuming. Or are we all assuming that the that basically what they're saying is scrap 20, section twenty one and and extend section uh, section eight provisions? Is it going to be as simple as that, or are they actually going to go and say, well, actually, forget section eight, section twenty one? We've got a completely new system of of of, of notice where nothing is mandatory in terms of a ground given to a ground. Because, you know, under Section 8, you have mandatory grounds that the judge has to give you possession if uh, if the tenant has, uh, uh, has breached or, 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 or failed to uh, comply with um, those conditions. From what I can see now, one of the big problems has always been, you know, say rent arrears, you had that situation that, you know, you've got a mandatory uh, um, uh uh, possession if they there was two months arrears at the date that they presented to the court um mm. and if not then uh there was discretionary uh, grounds for persistent and late and late payments of rent now reading and we went through before this kind of try to understand the actual uh, wording we we you know is it now kind of another kind of uh, uh situation that it's then up to the judge to decide on all cases where it comes to arrears. Well, it, it sounds to me, though, the, 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 the Section 8 powers are, are being maintained. There doesn't seem to be any suggestion of changes to those powers, i.e. If, if the tenant's in, the, in arrears of two months or more, then notice can be served. The, yeah. the notice period is increasing from two weeks to four weeks. I fail to see how that aids landlords. Like, if they're in that situation, you're just lengthening the time again. Um, but actually, what they've tried to do, and it, and it feels like a, um, a a bit of a false give, really. They note in the paper that actually they recognise there's times when tenants are playing the system. Um, essentially, they're paying, you know, they, it just gets to court and they're paying ten pounds to get below 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 the, the threshold. I, I accept that happens. I'm not disputing that. I, I am disputing the mass uh, in which it happens and the major problem it, it, it causes. I would argue that actually dealing with rent arrears in a more a meaningful way earlier on in the process, both through mediation at the very start and more 
more, more simplistic ways to evict tenants if they are in more than two months arrears would be helpful. But what they're saying here, Sean, it looks like is that we're going to help you out here, Mr. and Mrs. Landlord, by it, by saying if you get into repetitive arrears, so through um, three occasions where you are two months in, in two months arrears um, uh, across a three year period, you would have a mandatory ground to evict. Now, that's that's helpful, no doubt. I I I, I get that, um, but I'm not quite sure it answers the, the the point in which they were they were trying to answer because you know we ran through a timeline where actually you know over a three year period you could essentially um, still play that system. There's still there's still mechanisms for a tenant to, to get around it. And I, I just don't think that has much teeth, really, when it comes down to being meaningful for landlords in the event where there's mass arrears. And, and, and I agree, uh, Ollie, if it wasn't for uh, conversations that I've been involved with when we were speaking to the government who are looking for a holistic approach to this. And now, Clumsily, though that 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 particular part of the um, of the white paper is worded, and we can pull that apart as much as we we like, and it will be pulled apart. The idea is that really what the government want the emphasis to go from, especially when it comes to arrears, is is from where. Uh, there is a difference between a tenant who has fallen in by hard times and into financial difficulty and one that is playing the system. And how do you square that circle that they what now don't want somebody who is necessarily, you know, because of cost of living or whatever, has got themselves into problems, you know, just being faced with homelessness because of that black and white situation and protecting landlords from the situation that they can't, as happened and they brilliantly did it over, uh, as did letting agents over the pandemic, help tenants to stay in their property when everything was falling around their ears. So I think that's where a lot of discussion will be will be occurred about how that will actually work in practice, because absolutely, I think we've moved into an era now that, you know, that the landlord has a duty to help a tenant in financial difficulty whether that no is doubt. right or wrong, uh, but that's the, the, the way the government's kind of uh, rhetoric is coming, but not being ta- taken for a ride by the, uh, the charlatans that are out there. Um, mm. uh, you know, and the horror stories that you know I've seen that we've seen at Landlord Action where 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 pounds worth of uh, rent arrears have been accrued and you can't get the tenant out for love the money. So, uh, again, I think a lot of um, discussion will be around that. And guidance, and that leads us in. Sorry, segues into That's this right. pre uh, pre action protocol, the the mediation and the and the work that needs to be done before uh, getting onto the court uh, the, the doors of the court, um, and 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 an emphasis on on actually a landlord and a tenant trying to to work mutually to to deal with their situation, mm. um, and 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 this I very much support, um, you know. But the government the government did bring in a mediation pilot, which was quite frankly, a complete damp squib. Uh, it was too, it was, it was too it was late in the process. Too late it's, in the process. People are so ingrained and the yeah, sums yeah, yeah. involved. But now if you've got the situation that after a, a month or you know, or two months, you could start a process and, and the, the, the tenant has to engage with the landlord to try and help them to help themselves, then, then you know, I think that's really positive. So that holistic view, you know, I'm, I'm How you put out a bit of legislation? I don't know. I mean, that's difficult. And I, I'm all for that. And, you know, we have 
um, with a business that's proven that mediation at the earliest phase actually works. Um, and it's part, it continues to be part of our process for our, our rent protection product, and it will be, uh, I don't see that changing. Yeah. And I'm all for um, supporting landlords to work for tenants. They showed actually they, they do that through the pandemic. What I don't understand is putting a piece of legislation on the table to say, hey, look, we're helping here. You know, if the tenant does this bad thing three times in a row, don't worry about it, get rid of them. But the mechanism in order to evict a tenant for rent arrears is two months worth of arrears and then a four week notice. So which landlord is going to use that new point of legislation because they're going to go, actually, you know, given the constraints on on me, I'm going to I'm going to use the the, the law and legislation I have to my powers to evict the tenant as quickly as I can, because this could turn into, you know, a a real um, a real build of arrears. And I note that because the backdrop to all of this, in my mind, is the lack of structure and resources in the court and legal system. If the court and legal system was working to a rate that, you know, w- was reliable, frankly, then this wouldn't be so much a problem. But I feel like landlords and agents are backed into a corner because they know that once it gets past that point, you've drawn the, the drawbridge up, the tenant is now alienated, they're going to stop engaging. And they probably know that at the moment it's at least six, seven, if not more, up to 10, 12 months in order to go through that legal process. Yes. So it's kind of irrelevant what the notice periods are and what the because once you've got past that point, the battle lines are drawn, it's over to the courts, and we all sit there sort of twiddling our thumbs waiting for something to happen. So this doesn't address, in my mind, and not one part of the rental reform bill seems to address the problem we have in the legal system, the court system, which is disappointing because I would have expected expedited powers to really help alleviate some of the stress that's already there that, that will, con- will surely continue through the cost of living crisis. Do you see any change from a legal perspective in terms of fulfillment and resource? Uh, yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that, they, that, that they're not naive and they, uh, uh, they, they, they do realise that the resources to need to be put into, into the court. But they haven't necessarily got those resources. If you look at the, a fairly recent proposal uh, on their digital transformation of the court process, they've cut that back quite severely. Housing, fortunately, doesn't seem to be one of the ones that they're going to be cutting back on. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, one thing that uh, uh, everyone's been calling for is a much easier digital solution for dealing with uh, courts and especially on possessions uh they are bought into the idea of pre-action protocol and that uh, a lot of the cases can be solved by alternative dispute resolution and mediation however that's not a magic bullet either okay mm. and although i'm a great advocate of mediation and alternative dispute resolution and the success rates are high and the costs are severely uh, you know are reduced that ultimately you need bodies on the ground and we know uh, as the pandemic showed that uh, uh, the resources especially uh, you know in terms of the hearing uh, side of it uh you know they're close courts judges uh um, judges are well we're getting older they've appointed new judges uh you know uh, that they would it was put under strain now saying that it's getting back to normal now and i think the levels of uh of, of, of uh, court are higher but uh, higher now than they were during the pandemic but actually 
have not gone back to the levels they were before. No. But we've still got an issue with bailiffs. We've still got an issue with, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, with, with, with enforcement. All of these things are going to require resources. So, yes, I, I, I'm positive that they're trying to think about this holistically, but ultimately it's going to come down to, you know, how much money is in the pot at the end of the day. Mm. I think that the, the there needs to be a focus on that side of the coin. Uh, it, it is indeed one coin, and you can have the you know can have really meaningful legislative changes and powers. But if the, the framework isn't there to back those up and provide landlords with some kind of certainty and, and expedite that provision, you know it, it becomes extremely costly for landlords. Um, Graham, uh, good morning, Graham. I hope you're well. Um, asks um, a, a personal question around uh, rent protection. Um, uh, these are Graham's words, not mine, I would add. Will your fantastic RLP policy be affected by the reform bill in terms of what it offers or the cost of the policy? Um, I don't envisage it will be affected by what it offers. Uh, I think it becomes even more meaningful. Um, and um, I don't see that, you know, the the powers that they're suggesting elongate or add more burden um, to the provision of that service um, from a cost perspective, but it's extremely early days. Um and, and let's talk about how early days this actually is, because we've got a lot of questions coming in around the timeline, um, Sean. Um, the Tenant Fee Act got royal assent in February 2019. It was passed as law in June 2019, if I remember rightly. If we use that as the, the template for this, would it be fair to suggest that actually, because I think you said earlier, so you think that this will be will come into in, in, into effect around March 23. Was that right? Yeah, I mean, uh, basically, that's their drop dead date to to lay uh, the bill again uh, uh, to Parliament. So that's not a target, as far as I, I, I read into it. It's that's the that's the, the the latest date that they should be presenting a bill to the Parliament. So okay. they, in theory, they could do it sooner, but they, they've given themselves up till March to do that. Um, okay. And yeah, so I, I, the way I would envisage it is that there'll be. Uh, um, a couple of hard months, kind of round table consultation, dotting the i's, crossing the t's, uh, getting feedback on unforeseen consequences, um, followed probably then by a, a big announcement in September that you know that the bill is coming and what's in it, uh, um, and then you know by that, that session, the first spring session of a uh, uh, winter spring session of uh, 2023, they'll lay the bill. And then hope that they've ironed out a, a lot of the uh, uh, the problems um, or the uh, uh, the possible amendments, because we've got to take into consideration that any parliamentary bill is subject to amendment, and we've already seen movements from people like Shelter wanting to mm-hmm. extend the notice period for landlords, giving to three months rather than two months. There's talk about rent control um, um, and moratoriums and all sorts of stuff there uh, that you're getting from the opposition parties and the and the, uh, uh, the tenant representative groups. Um, you know, to say, well, actually, we're in a we're in a, a crisis, so we need we need action now. So the government is going to need to to uh, uh, to balance that. Um, Eddie Hughes uh, said, when, as far as he can see, that most most of the uh, the people uh, in Parliament, most of the parties in Parliament, will be generally happy with all of this. So it shouldn't be controversial, but it will be. And legislation does get bogged down on, sm- on small things. 
we will remember the tenancy deposit uh, periods uh, during the, uh, uh, the the Tenant Fees Act that, mm. that went on and on and on. It went for five weeks, six weeks, four weeks, three weeks, every week until it actually settled down. So there will be those situations where Parliament can get bogged down in, in getting the legislation. And, and that's an interesting point you make around there, around Eddie Hughes, in terms of saying actually this, he feels this has cross-party support because, as we know, the the current government has put the party back into party politics, and and for that reason is 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 being held um, to account. And potentially, you know, within X amount of time, there could be you know a general election. That's seemingly likely at the moment. But your feeling is, if there was a change in power within the country, that the majority of this bill has the support of. Of, of of cross parties and actually you don't you wouldn't envisage substantial change. Do you think this is something that will run irrelative of any governmental change? Because that is a pitfall that this could get completely soiled up, couldn't it? And then put on the back burner and we've all kind of wasted a lot of time talking about something that isn't going to happen. Well, look, I, I think the the likelihood is that it, it, it will definitely happen. Okay. Uh not least because um the I have not, even if there was a change of leadership at the current of the current government, uh, Michael Gove, who is leading the levelling up agenda, and this is their key um, uh, policy. Uh, and and again, if you thought eighty two pages of reading uh, the uh, white paper on uh, renting was a <laughs> was a a hard slog. Uh, reading through the, uh, the 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 details of the uh, of the levelling up, which is 174 pages, but actually covers a whole host of other things. There, you know, you can see that that is they've invested a core amount of their political capital into this uh, this the, the, these policies, and and to be fair, you could only see if. Uh, um, uh, you know, the opposition tried to one, you know, one man upmanship it rather than dilute it, to be fair. Okay. <clears throat> and and let, let's get on to pets then. Um, this has been <laughs> something that I think grabbed, grabbed a lot of headlines, actually. I think um, BBC News ran with this as the major point and talking point of this reform bill around pets. Um, talk us through what the, the bill's proposing from a pets perspective, Sean. Well, what it's proposing is that... Uh, we know following the Tenants Fees Act that uh, uh, deposits were capped and that fees were banned. And it, the dilemma that came out of that was that if you were a landlord and your tenant wanted pets, you were uh, offered less protection from damage by that pet due mm. to that legislation. So, uh, you, you know, you were disadvantaged so why would it be in your interest to either encourage or to uh, offer uh, pet-friendly properties? And why not actually say, do you know what, like smoking, like like uh, um, uh, let's ban it. And basically that went down like a lead balloon uh, um, uh, in, uh, you know, the tenant world, because we all know that, you know, pets are you know highly uh, uh, beneficial to you know uh, to to your standard of living. The uh, 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 you know lockdown showed that you know, mm. uh, and so there was a campaign that uh, was started by a lady called Jenny Brazier, Brazier, and it basically said, "Look, 
either undo the Tenant Fees Act and allow the landlord to take a extended pet tenancy or allow a landlord to protect themselves by getting some form of insurance to protect themselves against pet damage. But mm. essentially, the tenant really should contribute to that. And the government's listened and from their position of saying, no, we're not touching the Tenants Fees Act, we're not going to amend that, they now promise to look into delivering this to the extent that they're not going to allow pet uh, deposits, but they will allow some form of back charging for an insurance policy to prevent the uh, to to uh, protect the landlord. Now, whether that's going to be that the tenant contributes to the landlord's policy or they get their own policy out there, but it becomes a condition, is going mm-hmm. to be the devil's going to be in detail because as all the lawyers will go out there, you know, conflicting legislation is never a good thing. If uh, one part of the law says one thing and one says another, then you're going to get you're going to get conflict. So that's what you and I were discussing was really, you know, how they going to square this circle. Yeah, I mean, in picking through the tenant fee ban versus the, the new suggested legislation, I, I'd be very surprised if there's an allocation of costs from the tenant to the landlord. That feels messy um, and, yeah. and, and hard to, to, to sort of point where the value is. I, I think it's more likely that there'll be a mandation where a pet is in the property. Um, uh, one, what constitutes a pet? Uh, a, a goldfish versus a llama. Um, are they the same pet? Um, Definitely detail there, but I think it's more likely that you know if there's a pet in the property, um, then the landlord is able, if they so wish, to mandate the tenant takes um, appropriate um, insurance out um, to protect the property from damage from that pet. And um, yeah, I, I'd be surprised if it was any other way around than that. But again, the detail of what constitutes a pet. Um, it, the, the wording says that you can't unreasonably say you know you can't unreasonably decline a tenant with a, a pet in the property. That unreasonable um, phrase I think allows for interpretation. So it'd be interesting to see how that is interpreted. I would hope you know there's clear definitions on <laughs> clearly having a horse in your front room versus having a dog. Um, but you know I think the, again working through what this means. I don't think any of us disagree with the idea that tenants um you know uh being afforded the luxury of having pets in the property is a luxury in itself it's you know most most people see that as a standard thing i think we also completely agree that landlords should have the right provisions and protections in place their property shouldn't just be able to uh, to be trashed for want to read a phrase on the basis the tenant wants a pet in there so this feels like a sensible actually outcome in many respects to me um on the basis that the detail is is indeed common sense uh common sense approach um it's interesting how many headlines that got, and that certainly feels, in some respects, to a bit of a vote winner. But something that actually the industry has talked about for a long time, um, and aligning that in legislation, I suppose, gives more clarity and fairness um, across the board. Um, in terms of joining all these things together, um, there is suggestion there's going to be a tech-powered property portal for landlords. Now, there's been talk before. We've talked about property MO- MOTs. Um, this, to me, is the first incarnation of such a thing where we start to have one central point of control uh, for the data points. If there's one bit in the bill that I think lacks um, detail more than any other, for me, it's this bit, Sean, because, you know, talk us through what this is, first of all, actually, but then talk us through how you think this could be this could be actually um, delivered. 
Right. So uh, essentially, when, when we read this, uh, it, you know, I, uh, my first reaction was, "Oh, well, that's a long way round of calling, a, you know, of calling something a register, isn't it?" So uh, look, you know, um, uh, and and the whole bit admitted to to us that the, the the word register they felt had connotations of um, of cost and control over la- landlords uh that were not positive uh and that really the objective of uh, the register uh, uh, um as it essentially is was to actually achieve an objective of better homes rather than be just a a list um um of everybody on um on, on a big long list that either it, Half people don't actually bother to sign up to, or there's no enforcement on it. So they've taken it, and they've the principle is now that the property is going to be the focus. So that property, which makes a lot of sense because landlords change, uh, you know, both both physically and as entities, uh, properties are on the market for some period of time and then come off the market. Uh, and if you're trying to just kind of manage a landlord register, it, you know, it's it, it's quite a, uh, a a tedious thing then to actually, uh, you know, to do in terms of getting it successful. But if you say, well, actually, what doesn't move is a property. A property sits there. If that's on a register, a portal, and we have details about the condition and type of that property, then you can also say, well, actually, what are the main ob- ob- obligations of a landlord to provide a safe, warm, secure property for a tenant? We can monitor it that way rather than, you know, have uh, you know, concentrate on the land on the landlord. So that's the, the theory behind it. That's what they keep saying is it's going to be more than just a list, more than just mm. a register. And it's going to be based around the principles of uh, uh, of, of decent homes. And you know, again, we know that the decent homes uh, was brought in for the social uh, sector. Um, whether that's been entirely successful is you know is a debatable point. However. The decent homes principles, from what I can see, is to provide the standard of, and quality of homes, as well as them being safe and, and secure. So it's a bit, it's beyond, beyond just kind of like repair issues and hazards. It's, it's the holistic experience of that property. That sounds very esoterical, and how you're going to measure that is going to be where the details going to be uh, mm. problems. What do you deem as being a decent home? As, you know, uh, that's providing the utility that is needed. So, for example, uh, um, uh, uh, one example is providing a kitchen, uh, a modern kitchen that is adequate for the needs of the tenants. That's one of the decent home standards. It doesn't mean that you know you, you know that uh, uh, it goes beyond the fact that the, the washing machine or the cooker may be dangerous. It's whether it's adequate and up to uh, and up to standard, and even now whether it's energy efficient. So uh, you know it's it, it it's a bigger bigger list, a bigger 
commitment than than just what we probably and, got with the health and safety stuff. Yeah, and and, and Amin asks actually, does that does the decent home standard supersede HHS, HHSRS or Fitness for Human Habitation Homes Act in twenty eighteen? It goes beyond, I think. Because it takes because into it, consideration that 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 you were going to find a cooker that's uh, uh, you know leaking gas is definitely going to be a category one hazard, but one that kind of like takes four hours to cook a uh, you know to cook a dinner uh, and use twice as much energy wouldn't necessarily fail uh, health and safety, but isn't really a decent uh, and uh, provision for for a kitchen. So that that would be kind of like an extreme example of it. And- and um, I appreciate there's, there's quite a few questions on pets, by the way, Sean, which we'll come back to just uh, mm. after the next two points. Um, but um, Charlotte asked in regards to this, who will have access to this uh, this portal and what information will we see on it? Um, I think that's kind of the, the, the detail we're waiting to see. On it. Well, it starts with who, who manages it and who owns it, right? And, and who's actually constructing this thing. Um, I think it's fair to say both you and I, Sean, think this will be a government-led initiative rather than a third-party initiative given potential conflicts and, and, and data management. Yeah. Where do you see this sitting? Yeah, I, I, I see it sitting, as you, right. I mean, uh, the government uh, should, you know, control this um, because delegating out to a third party that sort of data, uh, you know... I, <sighs> It's problematic, put it that way. You know, you know. However, however, a, a strict criteria and and, and decent guardians uh, we all are with data that we we, we handle on behalf of the government uh, and our clients. That ultimately, the safest bet would be to have it as a single um, uh, source of data, which the government would control. But 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 I've. Uh, you know, has quite universal access to uh, uh, to third parties to provide that information, but also to access it. So, for example, you know, it's not beyond the ken of uh, of modern technology to uh, you know to incorporate electrical safety and gas safety uh, um, uh, uh, information, uh, deposit information, uh, uh, insurance information, all of these things there. And, you know, and, and and to be fair, you know, in modern times, we do now have. Uh, these sort of universal databases that communicate with each other, the, the mm. DVLA, uh, the uh, um, uh, the right to rent uh, yeah. um, uh, databases, and that will, but that makes sense for the government to take ownership of that, and then the yeah. rest of us to uh, to to have license and access to that for our purposes, uh, to you know uh, that will help help the the the, the, uh, the delivery of the services. Indeed, and I completely agree. And actually, I went to the, um, I don't know if anybody's used that new new passport process online. I don't actually how new it is. It was new to me. And it's a government-owned piece of, uh, of software, and it works brilliantly. Um, so if the uploading of documentation, for example, and the recording of data and storing of data can be as simple as that, and it's based around the, uh, you know, the property itself, going back to URPM, use, utilizing that to then feed everything off, then it makes sense as a, as a next step for our industry to have this data and a data source where everything is pulled together. I think that has massive advantages across the sector. Um, there are a few questions though around this. Um, two from, from somebody who hasn't left their name. Um, good morning, whoever you are. Um, will each property have to be registered if same landlord owns, say, four properties? Um, I think they would, wouldn't they, under the current suggestion? And it, it would be based around, hopefully in the future, using the URPN, the unique property reference number for each property, and feeding off that, I'd imagine, in, in time to, uh, in time to come. 
yes, every property, you know, the logic is it's the property, you know, that yes, is registered first. And then the, the beneficial owners and landlords and, you know, and everybody else uh, it would be associated with that. I mean, I did, you know, I and, and you know, I've yet to have a detailed conversations with uh, the government from my perspective, but, but I did see one of the lead civil servants on uh, Friday at the uh, Chartered Inst- uh, Trading Standard Institute conference and i said well look we need to you know to look at rent to rent and and uh you know uh incorporated companies and everything else in terms of making sure that you've got a holistic picture of uh of the rental market out there and because you know it does does adapt but the property itself doesn't move well unless it's a caravan indeed and and um uh, again a question actually who who has that for then um under the decent homes act does that mean that landlords will now have to supply white goods to the property Good question. Um, mm. I would say that if it was a furnished property, you'd have to provide white goods to the standards of the decent homes um, standard. But if it's unfurnished, no. no uh, yeah, I, I would I would agree. And I think yeah. actually what it does is it probably means you see landlords extremely reluctant to provide any kind of appliance where they don't have to. Uh, on the basis that you know they won't be using old old um, uh, goods here, you know they're going to have to be up to date. You know they have to be efficient, etc. So it'll be interesting to see that if we're right on that, what the knock-on effect of that is, um, you know, and what landlords sort of view on that is, I suppose. But no, I, I would agree, Sean, to that understanding. Again, bear in mind with some of this, we are still sort of working through the detail on the back of a white paper, um, and there's a little clarity on some of these points. But I think it's fair to assume. There wouldn't there wouldn't be a necessity to provide those. Um, okay, um, so an area that um, you, you you know very well, Sean. Um, the the paper suggests the creation of a private renters uh, abundsman to arbitrate uh, arbitrate excuse me um, disputes, and they note a single um, point of control here. Uh, I think um, talk us through the changes here and how you think that's going to work. Right. Well, so this is probably where I will probably have my own uh, questions. Um, declare an interest. We are a redress uh, a provider for uh, uh, for letting agents. We're undertaking a trial with the NRLA to extend that to um, their landlord members. And we have all, almost 6,000 la- voluntary landlords on that scheme who are, along with the uh, TDS and, uh, and, and, and NRLA, are engaging in, uh, in this pilot to see if we can... St- uh, get a workable landlord uh, redress uh, uh, process up and running. However, you know it, it's been long in the uh, in the alternative dispute resolution world. Uh, advocates of of only providing a single source of ombudsman uh, or redress services uh, has been the most uh, conducive way to uh, provide um, uh, a clear and unambiguous service um has lots of strong advocates you know and um in in a lot of sectors they do only have a single um ombudsman the problem we've got with our sector is that we are complex it's not just about landlords it's about letting agents it's about a whole host of other people that are involved and engaged in the whole of the property market and therefore i've always taken the view that a single um um uh, one-stop shop is not 
the entire answer because it's such a complex uh, area. What I'm a bit perplexed about is that we already have two very successful redress schemes for letting agents and that uh, uh, 40% of, uh, of, of properties out there have some involvement with a, a letting agent um, uh, in some shape or form um, that we now have a kind of a situation where you have to be a member of two redress schemes for the same issues. Does that not make things mm. more complicated? Uh, the, the, rather than having a holistic approach to the complaint. So I've, I've argued, and, and I don't think this is set in a hundred percent set in stone in terms of how they're going to deliver this, because I think you can square the circle of having a single authority ombudsman, but I would want to extend it across the whole of the sector, but, uh, um, uh, uh, but being able to, to be driven by a single access for a complaint. So if that complaint is a combined complaint between the duties and issues of a landlord and the duties and issues of a, uh, of a letting agent or an estate agent or whatever the other person, that you can deal with the whole thing holistically mm. because the customer doesn't see or the client doesn't see that there's a difference. No. They don't see a difference between the letting agent and the landlord uh, uh you know if it's a tenant they just did see the difference i've got a problem i don't want the landlord saying nothing to do with me go see your letting agent and vice versa so i think the single ombudsman concept should be about treating a complaint as a single complaint i won't this, say this any more the, than that because you know to be this, fair i have a vested I, I, interest in I, this. I will i will i'll save you from completing yourself um, this does feel, though, like uh, potentially a, a branding exercise. You, the, you, we have the fulfilment in the industry already. We're pulling that fulfilment together under one title, but actually the parties that are dealing with this may continue to deal with it the same way. Um, is that not a possibility that ultimately it's just it's just a change in name? But, you know, having one point of control is also one point of failure. So sort of ring-fencing this to one power seems a little ludicrous, um, but pulling it all into one funnel and educating the, the key stakeholders better, I think, is clearly an advantage. So do you not see this as potentially just a rebrand almost? And something then continues pretty much as it is now. No, because I think I think the reality is that, 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 that it's beyond that. I think the scale now of bringing in, what, four million odd landlords into a, a, a process that they were – that few of them have been engaged in in the past is a huge undertaking because this is going to include not just the uh the good uh, the, the landlords who self-manage you know uh um and 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 treat treat this as a uh a profession so they actually they do the work that the letting agents do it's going to include all of the landlords who are under letting agents, and they will include the ones who are living overseas, that live in a different parts mm. of the country, that are 87 and a half years old, which I dealt with uh, some uh, landlord who had 16 properties, you know, he's almost in his 90s, and he, he'd handed over to a, to a letting agent, and literally they never talked to him because he's 87 years old, and, you know, he's never going to take that responsibility. So the letting agent, you know, is, is, is going to say, well, actually, well, why are you putting this landlord through that 
to be a member of this when I'm dealing with everything yeah, on yeah. a day-to-day basis. So those have got to be ironed out. And I, I, you know, this is where I think uh, I, I, I fundamentally agree that this is the right direction. I completely understand that you don't want 30 or 40 different organisations trying to do the same thing. Mm. However, you've, how are you going to deliver this in a meaningful and practical way? And if you think about the way it's going to be dealt with and the sort of issues that you're going to deal with that are specifically for landlords, these are not issues that you can wait six, eight, 12 months to, to deal with uh, in a backlog. You're going to have to deal with these you know, almost immediately, you know, in real time, in yeah, real yeah. time. And and that is going, that's the challenge. It's a big job. Yeah, it's a, it's big a big job, job. isn't it? Like yeah. you say. And and I think what what's great about having having you on the, these 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 webinars, Sean, is that you, you can give us a reflection of that with with a couple of different hats on. And it, it you know I'm going to say it always feels uh, it never does feel conflicted. I think you give us a good perspective, and I'm sure we're all keen as this progresses to welcome you back to understand more about how that's changing. Because yeah. again, that understanding the whole industry is key if we're going to actually utilize services that then make a difference and and, and can help the industry. Um, so. When it when we come to landlords, um, clearly uh, they they are very invested in, in in having the ability to increase the rent where they think it's it's possible. Um, the powers around rent increases are going to change though under the the renters' reform bill. Um, what does this mean for landlords, and how how are they going to be able to increase the rent should they want to? Well, the, the, this was all very ambiguous, wasn't it? Because. <laughs> uh, uh, and actually, I'm trying to think of the actual phrase that was in the actual white paper uh, when they were talking about it. About it was when they were saying that a landlord will be restricted to raising the rent on a, a, a once a year, mm-hmm. building on existing provisions. Exact words brackets. So effectively, section 13 is there. It's you know, it's it's this is what it is at the moment. So. No change there, really. Uh, mm. So, what are they saying? You know, th- th- there is provisions out there for dealing with um, uh, with re- rent rent increases uh, and powers that the tenant can have if unfair rent rises are coming in, in into place. Whether those powers are actually exercised, easy to access, etc., that may be the issue. And but but you know I asked around. I said, "Well, do tribunals frequently uh, up the amount of rent a rent uh, rent asked by a by 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 a landlord? So if a landlord goes and uh, wants to put up a rent by two hundred pounds a week, and the tenant takes them to the tribunal, and then the, mm. the tribunal says, "Oh, not only do we think that two hundred pounds, let's make it three hundred pounds." I'm not aware of many cases where that actually happens. On the whole, no. the tribunal will look to uh, to to have a fair look at the the market rate. Now that's the issue. What is the market rate? I think this is where the big debate's going to be. You know, um, uh, you know, you're not to expect um, landlords to uh, rent out properties at a loss or letting agents to to uh, to encourage uh, um, properties to be rented out where the landlords are not going to make make, in, make in- money. Indeed, and I'll go back to Vix's point at the start of the webinar. His question was, talk me through the three you know, positive things, essentially, for a landlord. And arguably, in this, there, there isn't huge positives. There's maybe a little bit more burden, a little bit more burden of cost, which then could add to the rental amount. That isn't the, that isn't the, you know, that isn't the purpose of this bill, but I could see 
I could buy an argument that says some of these measures are going to add more cost to landlords and therefore it's going to support rent increasing. I think the market is doing that anyway at the moment, given the lack of stock and the surge demand of tenants. But, you know, ultimately, it doesn't feel like a change. You've got a yearly you've got a yearly process of reviewing the rental amount. If the tenant doesn't like it, they can go to tribunal. They could do that anyway. The Section 13, it doesn't mean Section 13 is going to be used more thoroughly than it has been maybe this far. That's really owing on the basis the tenants are aware they can go to tribal in the first place as well, isn't it? So, you know, I, I don't think this feels like a huge material material change to me anyway. And it feels like you're echoing that, Sean. It doesn't yeah, seem to be too worried about. Um, I think I think the what they might end up doing is in the model tenancy. Uh, strengthening that 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 uh, rent increase grounds to be more specific and mm. not they, they talk about uh you know un, unreasonable and, and vague uh tenancy terms on rent reviews um so whether they prescribe then uh you know a market you know you can have a rent review clause but it has to to reflect x or y which is what people were talking about the uh um you know having uh uh Without going down rent control, can you have rent review clauses that are fair? That's the point. Um, a non-prescriptive. And I think what the government's tried to do is say, yes, we want to make sure that rents are con- not controlled, but but are modified or moderated, but or we don't want to go down rent control. So mm-hmm. we'll ban kind of like unreasonable terms, but we won't necessarily say, we're going to put in a clause that says you can only put it up by X amount over RPI or whatever. And I think that's where they've got themselves kind of like uh, um, caught between a, a rock and a hard place between on the political side of it. They want to go and say to the organisations out there that we are doing something to protect tenants against the increasing uh, um a percentage of people are paying out in rent. However, we don't want to do rent controls because we don't believe they work. So it's going to be very interesting to see how they how they level this with the wording that actually that is formed in in place for the legislation, and also what the you know what the tribunal will then look at in terms of what constitutes a fair increase and not a fair increase, and how they acknowledge market rents. You know, if you look at how changeable market rents have been in the last couple of years, for example, then you know ultimately that's probably the majority of the market is behind the pace, actually, um, I would imagine, uh, rather than ahead of the pace. Um, so, again, this doesn't this doesn't necessarily mean, I think, what they intended to mean in terms of controlling rents more so. It, maybe it puts more emphasis on a rental increase. And I know that's something that agents and landlords work closely together on. But we've got to remember that the majority of landlords live outside of that relationship. So having legislation here that then focuses the mind, you know, potentially increases rents at a quicker pace than it had done previously. But... You know, time will tell. Um, I'm conscious of time and, and, and hundreds and hundreds of you have stuck with us uh, this morning. Thank you very much for your time. I hope this has been of some use. One of the points we haven't covered, what I just want to cover quickly, is the point around lifetime deposits. Um, that was a um, a major key point, actually, um, in, in the uh, anticipation of this bill. It was uh, mooted around by the government through different um, means. Um, and actually, um, surprisingly, Sean, um, formed very little of, of this bill itself. In fact, I'll, I'll read the, the line out. Um, we will work with industry experts to monitor the development of innovative market-led solutions to passport deposits. That is that is the, the headline. This will help tenants who struggle to raise a second deposit 
to move around the PRS more easily and support tenants to save for ownership. That's as much airtime as lifetime deposits really get in the bill, um, and it's as much detail as we've got. This feels like an, uh, an omission, frankly, that is going to slip off from legislative change and almost become a third a, a third choice in, in terms of options. Um, would you agree with that, or do you think actually this is just abiding their time to come back with more detail? Maybe. I, I think. I think. Uh, I think all of the above. I think first of all that the um, they have to give a nod to the fact that this was a initiative from the prime minister himself number 10 uh and uh was announced that this was the issue that they uh, uh they felt was one of the affordability issues for a tenant being deposits personally i think that they got completely wrong end of the stick that the deposits and affordability are not uh, you know, as linked as some people have made them out to be. Yes, it's an initial cost, and and, and finding that money is an uh, is an issue. Uh, and yes, there are tenants out there that do find transitions between two properties for a very short period of time a burden that they you know that uh, they need to find that money. And that was the mm. the main solution. I think I would want to have seen. If you were going to look at tenancy, uh, tenancy deposits, them squaring some of the the, the more uh, um, important uh, 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 elements of it, which is, and if this is hugely improved, which is the speed in which the deposits are returned, and from four fifteen years ago when that could take anything up to a month, uh, uh, you know, is so much quicker. The uh, acknowledgement that they are there is a no deposits uh regime out there but that should be on par with uh, a physical deposit or no, or, or uh, um uh, absolutely no deposit or insurance whatever mm. thirdly that uh policy and was announced before the working group had actually even uh concluded and actually um I, i've still got to get around to another document to read they've actually released the consultation uh, the, uh, they're releasing the document on the deposit uh working group um uh, as part of this process uh that that when the the details were looked at and the fact that you know it would involve possibly loans insurance or whatever that the financial implications and the uh, the risk factoring and the uh, uh, applicability issues that anybody who works in insurance or banking and, uh, deals with on a regular basis were not as simple as just having a passport type thing so yeah. i think i think a modified situation will come out of that and we may hear something down the line, but I don't think it's their priority now. No, it doesn't seem that way. And I think, you know, if anything, we, we may get to a stage where the government endorses X amount of number of schemes in the same way they've done with deposit protection. Say these are, you know, these are verified, um, verified uh, lifetime deposit schemes, for example. But the, the, the wording in this paper is clear. This is going to be a market led third party process. So um, I think a bit like you, uh, I don't see this as a priority in. And may may well just be be, be left left um, uh, for a little while longer as uh, while the government work with the third parties in the sector and PwC, for example. Yeah. Um, but, but interesting space to watch. Um, I'm just want to cover. I appreciate we, we, we've overrun, but there are a few questions um, that may be worth just just really covering as quickly as I possibly can. Um, there's a few questions around uh, pets, and you know, ultimately, if I have a flat, does this change? 
the understanding is this isn't this isn't dependent on your property type. If you're renting a property, then um, you can't reasonably decline uh, as a landlord the tenant liabilities of pets, but you can mandate um, a level of insurance to protect any damage to that property. Um, there's been no note what I've seen, Sean, that it um, defines properties like flats, for example, to not be accessible to pets versus, say, detached properties. Yeah, I think I think you've got to keep open the uh, 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 you know you know the dialogue. You can't have a, a prohibition uh, straight ban, but of course you could quite uh, uh, easily argue that keeping a uh, a Great Dane in a, a one bedroom studio flat on the thirty first floor of a of a tower block mm-hmm. isn't necessarily uh, the wisest thing to do. Um, so. But you can't have the, the, the complete ban. Um, and again, you know, uh, we haven't mentioned it. They are, you know, it's the same as with children. And, you know, saying, no, you can't have blanket bans on children and people on benefits, which I, you know, uh, the, the latter one, I, you know, would probably have a whole seminar on its own on that one. Yeah, so. indeed. And, and to, to that question as well, uh, I think Courtney asked another one around, you know, how can you say no to come with three massive dogs? The, the wording so far is is, is reasonably. Um, so again, we, we, we wait to see more detail, but it feels like there will be opportunity that on a yeah, common sense uh, approach here to say that actually, if you had three three Great Danes in a small flat on the 33rd floor, I, to me, that's reasonable. But hey, who am I to judge what reasonable is and what reasonable isn't in the in the confines of uh, of, of, of this this chat? So um, we will wait and see what that brings. Um, there's quite a few questions around the changes to Section uh, 21 um, and the ability to get the property back. Um, as many as many statements actually as there are questions. A lot of agents um, thinking here that or, or feeling quite quite strongly that ultimately this is this is really hampering um, uh, the landlord's ability to get the property back. Um, also asking questions again around um, proving that the uh, property is up for sale. We, we, we tried to cover this earlier. Um, the, the real answer is we don't know yet. We don't know what mechanism is going to be asked to then show that you are going to sell that property. I imagine there will be a mechanism, otherwise the wording is pointless and nobody will say they're going to sell the property or move the brother and sister in. Um, but uh, we, we, we're yet to be uh, granted the foresight on what, what those mechanisms are. Uh, from from this this paper anyway. Um, And remember, all of this is going back to consultation with the industry uh, and the roundtables that sit within those industry, in that industry. So um, yes, they've got got us this far, but there's quite a long way to go. And to Sean, your point at the end of the meeting, uh, or the webinar, saying this is the very start. um, And I think it's important to recognise that. We're trying to give insight on what the white paper says, but, you know, there's very possible, strict possibilities that some of this detail changes over time following industry consultation, which, you know, again, it's important to get it out there now, is all trying to understand what they're saying, and then hopefully have a, a collective opinion that can aid the, the betterment of this bill uh, for all stakeholders involved. Um, with that in mind, um, uh, the betterment of today um, is, is for you, to let you guys get on with what you, you do best, and that's renting property, looking after landlords and tenants. Thank you so much for listening to us and taking the time out of your busy schedule. Sean, Thank you very much for your insights today. Really, yeah, so really thank you, Ollie. I, I just wanted to, you know, and ask to the, you, you said that you weren't going to plug Good Lord, and you haven't paid me for this, but the, the last time uh, I, I did a webinar for you, you kindly sent me this uh, this t shirt there. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and seriously, you know, this. This legislation isn't happening tomorrow. There's going no. to be a lead in time. Do not overreact. Do not panic. Put the message out to your landlords there that they don't 
have to sell their properties now and get out of the sector is still a booming and a, a lucrative uh, um, market out there. That there was no reason to uh, to to come out of the market, uh, uh, you know, because the legislation is not going to change overnight. So keep calm and carry on is what I'm and, uh, the message is. And I think to that point, I, I 100% agree. So I think to that point, we had quite a few questions around where are the benefits here for landlords? What do I do as an agent? Where can I, you know, is there a positive side for me as a letting agent or me as a landlord? Um, I'm going to suggest live on air, Sean, that we we try and get get a perspective on that in the next two or three months. We have another webinar that focuses on not just the legislation, but the benefits or not to landlords and the benefits or not to letting agents. And we'll come back to you guys with a session that I hope you join us join us with, um, and we can run through how we see that. Um, in fact, we've actually got a uh, we've got one in the diary, maybe coming up relatively soon on the seventh. But we'll see if we can get our thoughts placed in time for that. But again. Thank you for all of your time. Uh, Have a fantastic week, guys. Um, And Sean, once again, thank you very much.